This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic and Antarctica. Hello and welcome to episode 17 of the Polar Geopolitics Podcast. My name is Eric Pagley here in Stockholm, Sweden. And on this episode, we'll be uh, exploring the brand new uh, released uh, report by the IPCC. It's the special report on the ocean and cryosphere in a changing climate. And on the phone line, I have with me uh, a coordinating lead author of this uh, new report, Martin Summerkorn. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you very much, Eric. I'm happy to be here. So let's get right into uh, discussing the content of this report, uh, which is already making a big splash, and I'm sure it will uh, continue to do so in the days ahead, especially in this very heightened awareness moment of climate change, which we'll uh, we'll discuss also a little bit later on in this uh, podcast. So Martin, um, you've been observing, researching, and advocating for the Arctic for many years. Does this new IPCC report and your key role in its production as a coordinating lead author make you understand the Arctic and other parts of the cryosphere in any new ways? Yeah, thanks for this question, for having me, Eric. Uh, first of all, let me say that at the moment, around the release of the IPCC SROC report, I will speak exclusively as an IPCC coordinating lead author. In a couple of days, I will go back to my day job as head of conservation for the WWF Arctic program. So here, I'm really speaking in the spirit of IPCC, speaking with the one voice and my role as coordinating lead author of the Polar Regions chapter. But yes, of course, I have been involved for years, decades even, in Arctic work and in terms of how I view this all personally and how I work with it, these roles are really more or less the same and cannot be really separated. But back to your question, I think the answer is really no. The involvement in SROC hasn't made me seeing things in a different way, but it certainly has made me thinking more carefully about how the world and the Arctic has to hear about the changes in the Arctic, consequences, their impact, and especially also the responses to these changes. And working on the product, producing the report and the summary for policymakers especially certainly helped to refine the messages that governments would like to see reflected in a report of the cryosphere and ocean, including now from the Arctic. So I guess the answer is really, no, it hasn't really changed or added much, but it's refined and it's the messages that I think we will see readily in the SROC. By the way, I like the acronym very much. I'm a, I'm a rock and roll guy, so SROC kind of has a nice ring to it, but that's besides the point. But we'll get a little bit more into the content of this report and some of the main uh, findings that uh, that are, we should also point out, as with other IPCC reports, this is not original research, right? This is, this is a review of existing uh, literature. That's exactly what uh, the hallmark of the IPCC is. We are reviewing the entirety of existing literature uh, here specifically, the literature that has been produced since the uh, fifth assessment report of the IPCC in 2013-2014. So this is the hallmark here. And in that respect, there is really only that framework of the IPCC that counts in order to produce this report, yes. And as you mentioned, this is this is part of the sixth IPCC assessment cycle, which is leading up to uh, the next uh, IPCC assessment report. So it follows on, uh, on the fifth report that you mentioned. Also, very uh, notably, the uh, 1.5 degree uh, report that came out last year, which attracted a lot of attention, created a lot of concern. This uh, other IPCC special report on land, which came out uh, just uh, recently. So how does this compare, perhaps update, expand upon, and uh, complement to the fifth assessment report? Also the uh, the 1.5 degree report, and also the 2016 Arctic Resilience Report, which was not a, an IPCC report, but was also something that you were closely involved with. Yeah, it's a, that's a very good question. The one thing to note here is that the special report, including specifically SROC, the special report 
report on, on ocean and crisis in exchanging climate is a very different beast compared to the fifth assessment report and, and also compared to the Arctic resilience report, but that there are indeed overlaps as well as uh, important differences. So with respect to the fifth assessment report, SROC is an integrated assessment across the physical, biological and social changes and impacts that we are seeing with a focus also on responses and a strong focus on key regions and these key regions being critical component of our planet, both in terms of climate regulation, but also in terms of many other services. What this means is that this integrated assessment really was what attracted me to accepting the nomination as ordinating lead author. There is an increased clarity and focus that comes from this integrated assessment rather than spreading elements that are relevant for the Arctic across the traditional working group one to three foam format of the IPCC, where physical changes, adaptation and vulnerability and mitigation are treated separately. So the real opportunity here was to uh, take all of these foci and highlight issues from critical regions, giving thereby a very global picture at the outcome of the changes that we are seeing, what they mean to the world and what the world's policies and their consequences actually mean for the Arctic, the Antarctic, the ocean and the high mountain regions. So this was really the focus of the SROC. And I think in our times, as I may, I think the special reports are because of this focus and clarity, maybe more impactful than the large assessment boards of IPCC. I have to say that we have learned a lot since this fifth assessment report. Change is really faster now. It's partly accelerating. People want to know more about what it means that the polar regions, the ocean and the high, the high mountains are changing. And we have gotten over the last years much more insight into the causes. Now, you also mentioned the Arctic Resilience Report. The big difference here is that IPCC Special Report on Ocean and Crisis here is really speaking to a global audience. And this is actually the first time that the Arctic and, and other regions I mentioned are assessed as part of a global record in this report in this integrated way. So interesting part, of course, in producing the report was that while we therefore had to think about what we want to tell a global audience, we also had to be true to all the Arctic knowledge and the communities that are reflected, knowledge communities as well as practitioner communities, science communities. A couple of interesting overlapping components here are between especially the Arctic Resilience Report and also the, uh, the IPCC SROC are, for example, the increasing awareness that we have to include indigenous knowledge and local knowledge among scientific knowledge in order to allow a better picture emerging of the impact and risk and also of the responses and the efficiency of responses to climate change. Another interesting aspect is that increasingly we are seeing the desire at the global level of a framing of climate change responses in the context of resilience, not only in the term in the context of risk. And traditionally, this is actually something that we have done very often in the Arctic, as in the Arctic, climate change is intricately linked to development challenges and the pathways going forward for human development. So resilience seems to be a concept that gets traction also at the global level, whereas we already have some experience with it in the Arctic. And then last is this very cross-cutting concept between the ARR and also emerging at the SROC that enabling participation in decision-making affects really responses to climate change 
the efficiency of these responses. And therefore, there is a growing trend really around the planet that we see that we all need to be enabled to participate. Therefore, we have to actually embrace the understanding of climate change, risk, resilience, impact at all levels of society in order to be efficient with our responses. Now, very interesting. And um, as you mentioned, it's uh, this, this report is an IPCC report. It's not a, a regional report. And, and we should also mention here that this, of course, we're focusing on this particular podcast on the cryosphere aspects, the mostly the Arctic and Antarctic uh, glaciers and such. But this is a report for about the oceans as well, the world ocean. So this is not a, a, a regional report. This is very much a global report. And that kind of also uh, dovetails with this idea of the global Arctic, which has been kind of a, a concept uh, for a number of years now. And also the cliche of uh, what happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic. Now, does this report confirm that that is indeed the case, that the uh, the Arctic has, has global impacts? And also, um, can the same be said for Antarctica? And also kind of uh, the, the reverse perspective and how does human activity that takes place in the mid-latitudes and the lower latitudes, does that have a direct impact on the polar regions as well? I think your statement of what happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic is certainly true. It's true in both directions. What happens at the planetary level actually affects, critically affects, polar regions, both Arctic and Antarctic. So it's, it's certainly a statement that is true in both directions. I have to remind you here of the focus of ESROC, which kind of follows the water from the highest tops of the mountains and the polar regions to the depths of the ocean and shows how connected all this is, the system Earth and the highlighting the critical role of the polar regions and the, the critical role in the climate system and also for people. Just as a reminder, I mean, the report starts very prominently saying that all people on Earth depend directly or indirectly on the ocean and cryosphere. In that respect, I also believe that we have seen several special reports during this assessment period, but and maybe I'm biased because I was involved in, in ESROC. I think maybe this report is the most important of them all because we are definitely at a state where we have to make urgent choices about the future of this planet. That is speaking loud and clear from this report. And it is not that these regions like the faraway polar regions and the, you know, the ocean out there of which we know so little in its depths are far from us. In fact, they are actually important for us all. They have, what happens there affects us all. And especially when it comes to our way forward and our increasing awareness that we are dependent on ecosystems and their functioning, on physical systems and their functioning, ESROC couldn't be more timely to advise governments on how to respond to this challenge. What sort of social and political impact would this new report are you hoping to have as it's being delivered right in the middle of all this, what's happening right now with the climate summit, huge climate strikes? So I think ESROC actually speaks loud and clear what it really has to bring to government in making critical decisions right now and into the future is that choices that are made now are critical for the future of our ocean and our cryosphere and therefore for all of us. The report really highlights the urgency of prioritizing timely, ambitious and coordinated action to address these unprecedented and long-term enduring changes in the ocean and cryosphere as they play a critical role for life on Earth. So in a way, this information, clear and irrefutable, comes into a political arena where decisions about reductions of emissions have to be made going to the next COP, the Conference of Parties to the UNFCCC, the United Nations Framework on Climate Change in Santiago de Chile in December, and where more and more people and more and more 
government institutions are also thinking about what to do to increase and improve the governance of our ocean and to deal with the big problems that we are seeing uh, in the ocean. So it comes at a very timely state. I think it provides in the, in the very strong way of IPCC a very clear picture of the knowledge that urges government to make these choices. Now we've talked about some of the, um, the previous reports, the IPCC uh, fifth assessment report from about five years ago, the uh, the 1.5 degree report from about a year ago, the, the Arctic Resilience Report, uh, which uh, was, was not an IPCC report, but also a very influential report from a couple of years ago. Another report that comes to my mind uh, from about 15 years ago was the Arctic Climate Impact Assessment, which was hugely influential in some ways, uh, to my mind, drove a lot of the interest in the Arctic around that time, around 2005 or so, when a lot of other countries started waking up to what's going on in the Arctic. But it wasn't the, the response at that time wasn't just pure concern for the Arctic. It was also uh, almost like countries and, and companies salivating at the opportunities which they hadn't really fully uh, realized that uh, a changing Arctic environment would create uh, shipping routes, uh, mineral exploitation, energy resources, and so forth. So with, with that previous report in mind, which was done by the Arctic Council, what risks do you see with this report? Could this possibly have a, a similar reaction that Yes, and that is certainly an interesting question, uh, and I agree with you that the Arctic Climate Impact Assessment from 15 years ago was a seminal achievement, setting an example in which integrated way we have to think about the changes. And yes, certainly in the minds of many people, the Arctic change risks are also linked to opportunities. In a broad fashion, I would have to state that where there are risks, there are opportunities, but these are not evenly distributed. And what ESROC has found out is that across all the systems, across all the geographies it has assessed is that people with the highest exposure and vulnerability to current and future hazards from ocean and climate changes are often also those with the lowest adaptive capacity. And uh, that is particularly true also for the Arctic, with the added challenge that in the Arctic, such communities are residing within what we think of as mostly developed countries. So it's actually less clear cut, as in many parts of the rest of the world, of who the vulnerable communities are, and they are not exactly nation states. But back to your questions more specifically, the report, the ESROC report is about the impact of climate change first and foremost, but it does shed some light on aspects relevant to your question, especially when it comes to caveating the opportunity side of the risk metal. There is certainly the statement that has to be made that the increases in shipping and tourism are at least concomitant with the loss of sea ice. There are many other drivers as well, but the climate change-driven loss of sea ice is certainly one of them. But the report also states quite clearly that if these sectors are not properly managed and regulated to deal with the increasing amounts of vessels, then they clearly lead to exacerbating the risks of climate change to ecosystems systems and people, their livelihoods, their cultures. So that is a within the Arctic view on, on your question. But there are also global consequences inside, for example, these sectors like shipping. For example, the report states clearly that actors that are invested in the lower latitude shipping rules like Suez Canal, etc., they may actually see detrimental effect of increasing Arctic shipping. The picture is really one that has to be looked into with a lens of detail and seeing who is facing the risks and who is facing the opportunities. And I think the Arctic countries should take this knowledge coming from ESROC 
give it a good look uh, in order to see what can be done about this. Actually, the quite substantial comparatively to previous IPCC reports, uh, sections on responses give clear ideas of how these risks from direct risk and indirect risk from climate change in the Arctic can be responded to and what kind of tools are available to strengthen the options that we have to respond better to climate change. There are certainly, for example, on, on the marine side, there are clear messages that speak to uh, fisheries approaches to enable a more precautionary way of managing stocks. And there are concrete examples of how this can be done. There are concrete examples of how the uh, adaptive capacity of ecosystems and the resilience of biodiversity can be helped by establishing for example, networks of protected areas, both on land and at sea. So these sorts of responses will help to counter the risks and then actually also the cascading risks that come from increased economic activities uh, to people's and ecosystems. Perhaps we can talk a little bit about what the report actually says, a bit of a scientific bird's eye view of what this report actually contains. Yeah, and I would like actually to uh, go into three parts that I think are especially interesting here. And I would roll them out because I was surprised or at least positively surprised, I see, that governments demanded certain information in the summary for policymakers. And that challenged the authors to find ways how to include it. And two up front are especially of interest. And these are both about long-term changes. Until now, IPCC has predominantly focused at this century because it was seen to be more important for decision-making. Now, with the ocean and crisis, we have to also consider the more long-term changes that we commit to by the choices that we do today. Of course, we know less about the changes that will happen after the 2100. And so we, some authors were hesitant to, for example, include the long-term projections of ice sheet mass loss from Antarctica and Greenland post-2100 into the same graphs as the one until 2100. And similarly, we were cautious to not speak in the same sentences with a similar knowledge and certainty about changes in permafrost carbon feedbacks in the long term. However, governments really insisted this had to be in the summary for policymakers. So it is in now, and you will see this by looking at the summary for policymakers, that there is a a long-term graph in there that shows how the different scenarios that ASROP looks at, 2.6 and 8.5, really pans out so very differently in the long-term committed sea level rise on this planet. And I think this is neatly captured in a sentence that would say that the choices that we make now, if we are accepting up to one meter of sea level rise in the year 2100. We are implicitly accepting multi-meter sea level rise by 2300. Whereas if we actually make the choices now to restrict sea level rise towards the end of the century uh, to much lower levels, embarking on a 2.6 scenario, then what we see is that actually there is a chance for the sea level rise to stabilize at much lower rates. And the same is true for emissions from permafrost. While we cannot be absolutely sure yet about the emissions that come out of the storing permafrost, we are increasingly sure about how different 
the amount of permafrost is that will thaw in the long term if we reduced emissions today. And that has huge implications for how much carbon science things may come out of these systems and provide a positive, so accelerating feedback to climate change. I think these are two important things that come out of this report and governments insisted to have this long-term view uh, in uh, portrayed in the summary for policymakers. Can you say a little bit more about this, the involvement of governments? That's one of the key dimensions, uh, the, the mechanism of having governments uh, part of setting the, the agenda for what the science uh, should be looking at in a particular report, but also in some ways um, kind of keeping an eye on what, what is actually published, especially in these summaries for policymakers. As a coordinating lead author, what, what, was, your, what was your impression of working with government representatives in, in crafting this report? I should I just should clarify the chapters of the report they don't see involvement of government other than that on the last draft iteration governments also comment and we as coordinating lead authors have to respond to these comments but the chapters are really the science and nothing else the summary for policymakers standalone is a shared joint product by the authors and the government and I have to say that I was much impressed of how much the clarity and quality of the uh, summary for policymakers actually improved over four, well, almost five very, very exhausting days here in Monaco over the last couple of days. And I'm, I spoke to many, many authors, colleagues here, and we all share this opinion. Over the negotiation, the clarity of the summary for policymakers actually increased. Very interesting. Also, th- this is really fresh off the press, right? This was just approved by the IPCC uh, plenary, I guess, and published immediately. Is that is that how fresh this report is? Yes, it is an interesting process uh, and then a very exhausting process, as I said, but necessary. I think what we are seeing here is IPCC is probably the most prominent global institution for a critical science to policy process. And we have few of these global processes. There were 111 government delegations in the room, and we went through the summary for policymakers draft word by word. Over four days, we had about three to four hours sleep per night in the first two days, and then we worked continuously from the morning of the fourth day, eight o'clock until 10.30 in the morning the following day to complete this process. It was extremely exhausting. It's sometimes very difficult and also challenging. But I think, as I said before, the quality of the summary for policymakers has improved. And importantly, it is now not owned by the scientists anymore alone. It is owned by all governments. The knowledge is given into their hand and they have agreed to this wording. So the science in no way from your experience was compromised or constrained throughout this process? No, not at all. If I could just ask one last question, uh, I always like to get a sort of a geographical picture uh, of uh, what's going on. Is there any particular hot spots that we should be looking at uh, from this report? Is there any place that, that, that the report zeroes in on, whether it's the Greenland ice sheet or the, the West Antarctic ice sheet or any other parts of the cryosphere that prove to be of particular concern at the moment and going forward? This would actually uh, really go way beyond the time of this interview. The detail that speaks for Mesrock is linked to the interest of the audience here. I think I highlighted the significance of sea level rise in this report. You spoke about tipping points. I could add that what we have learned from the science at the moment is that there seems to be, for example, no tipping point for Arctic sea ice, meaning that if we act to reduce emissions and limit the warming, we will see increased 
chances of summers where Arctic sea ice would be still present under a high emission scenario. We would, for example, see an ice-free summer every one to three years, whereas under a low emission scenario, we would actually see it only once in a hundred years. This is something that is very important, I think, also for feedbacks to climate change. We see uh, critically issues of concern happening in parts of the Western Antarctic ice sheet where possibility for a collapse exists and we see signs, indications of mechanisms that would support such a process, but we currently don't have them at the scale yet that we conclude such an irreversible process is already started. And that links to uh, the, the confidence that we have in the long-term projections of sea level rise. So there are certainly a lot of concerning things going on in the crisis here. In the ocean, we are seeing particularly coastal ecosystems under very high risk already at uh, levels of warming that we are already reaching. The coral, the warm water corals are one of these systems. And unless there are efforts to reduce warming to approximately 1.5, there is a very high risk that we see many of these coral, warm water coral ecosystems to go extinct. So there are, there are certainly uh, many of these hotspots. But I would also like to go back to saying it is not only at that large scale that thresholds exist. Regime shifts can happen at smaller scales. And a good example for that is coastal retreats and the relocation of villages and communities that are in vulnerable positions. Countries that have a lot of space and resources can have various options to respond to sea level rise. They can advance, build coastal protection to a certain degree, but not everybody has these chances. And so uh, many communities, and that includes actually in parts big cities around the world, have to consider also retreat as a potential option. The issue really is that there are different types of communities and there is a set of the response options are really context-specific. Sometimes they can be technocratic. Sometimes they really have to observe cultural issues first and foremost. Okay, well, Martin Summercorn, coordinating lead author of the new IPCC special report on the ocean and cryosphere in a changing climate. So, Martin, thanks very much for joining us here on the Polar Geopolitics Podcast. And I want to invite you to a future episode to discuss your work with uh, the WWF as head of conservation for the Arctic program there. Yes, thank you very much, Eric. I'm delighted to speak to you. It was a pleasure and hope to speak again. You can subscribe to the Polar Geopolitics podcast on most major platforms, including Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, and Acast. Check out our website, polargeopolitics.com. Get in touch by email, polargeopolitics.podcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Polar Geopol. Music by Mark Vandenbosch. Voiceover Keith Foster. Logo design by Daniel Brockman. My name is Eric Paglia. Thanks for listening to Polar Geopolitics.